Am I just my brain? Do we have an immaterial mind? But how can we say that we have an immaterial mind when we are able to control actions and thoughts by merely passing an electrode to the brain? If this is intriguing for you, surely don't go anywhere. Welcome to SAFT Podcast and if this is your first time listening or watching, stay subscribed and if you enjoy our work, do share and review our content on your favorite listening platforms and do stick around, we have some amazing content rolling out for you and today I am joined by Dr. Sharon Dix. Dr. Sharon, welcome to SAFT Podcast. It's a pleasure. Dr. Sharon is a senior tutor at OCA, the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. She has a PhD in brain imaging from the University of Cambridge and has held research positions at the University of Oxford and the Medical College of Wisconsin, USA. Her books are Why? Looking at God, Evil and Personal Suffering and that book and the topic that we're discussing today, Am I Just My Brain? Sharon, your book has generated a lot of response among both the lay and, uh, and also the expert audiences who are, who are diving into these questions. So what does the book Am I Just My Brain really cover? Yeah, thank you. Um, it's really um, asking a, a central question about human identity. What exactly are we? Uh, there are all kinds of explanations offered out there as to what we are. Um, and um, one of the explanations coming out is that we are our brains. We are driven by our neurons. Everything that makes us us hmm. is ultimately a product of the activity uh, of our brains. And, and so I, I really uh, am wanting to uh, respond to that um, from neuroscience, actually. You don't have to step far beyond and even within the realm of neuroscience to say that actually um, clinical neuroscience is showing that simply physical descriptions alone are not enough to explain human beings, that we are far more complex right. than simply physical processes, although those are an important mm. part of it. Um, and so really, I, I take the book in that direction. Yeah. And when we start this discussion about brain and mind, um, I guess we can go and uh, maybe take mind and consciousness synonymously because many people hold consciousness to be part of the mind. But let's let's try and explain what brain and mind uh, is all about. What what do we mean by the terms brain and mind? Yes. So, well, brain means the the physical uh, organ that sits inside your skull, um, both in terms of its structures um, of you know axons and cell bodies and, and dendrites and synapses, and then all of the kind of um, the movement uh, in amongst those in mm. terms of neurotransmitters and uh, chemicals and electrical activity and right. hormonal activity. Um, so. So by brain, I mean the physical processes in your head, both structural and functional. Yeah. And uh, so when we use the term mind, what are we, what are we meaning that? Obviously, it's not the same thing as we just talked about the brain. It's different. So what is different about the mind? So by mind, we, we mean um, all of the kind of subjectively experienced things um, concerned with memories, thoughts, feelings, mm -hmm. and emotions. There's a there's an inner reality uh, to every human being. Um, as Thomas Nagel put it in 1974, there is something that it is like to be you. Mm -hmm. 
um, that no one else quite knows uh, in the same way um, unless they were to ask you. Right. Um, and so how do we make sense of this inner reality and how, what is its relationship to the physical brain? And that is really the million dollar question that mm -hmm. this whole conversation hangs on. What is the relationship between the mind and the brain and how do these two things relate to each other in terms of consciousness I, again i think there are different people uh, people would hold different views on this um, for the purposes of this discussion it might uh, many just consider those two things to be synonymous but others might consider consciousness to be a property of the mind that right. there are conscious states um uh, that sit under the umbrella of of mind um, hmm but it probably depends who you ask. Yeah. And so I was just thinking, uh, you know, when we use the term limbs, uh, we would just throw both our four limbs and hand limbs under the category of limbs. So they both serve different functions and are placed differently and have different characteristics. Uh, you and other neuroscientists out there would definitely advise against using a single term to combine both brain and mind interactions. What is the core reason that we do not want to equate the brain and mind, though they both... Uh, mingle and uh, sort of work side by side? Well, I think that that whole, actually the whole notion of wanting to collapse those two things is operating on the presumption that the mind is a physical entity and mm. that is far from decided. In fact, the relationship between brain and mind or in the ancient world, body and soul has been debated for centuries and, and actually... Um, there are, there have always been uh, those who argue that 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 mental states, that consciousness, that soul is is not physical. Hmm. Um, of course, there are those that argue it's an emergent property from the physical today, and we can say more about that later. But um, those, it's not a foregone conclusion that the, hmm. the mind is a physical thing. Uh, in fact, if you start to dig into human beings and um, what the, um, the clinic is showing, we begin to see that, you know, the, the brain alone is really not sufficient to account for the fullness of human experience. Imagine right. we were to do an experiment to figure out what it is like for you to revise for your next set of exams or mm. to uh, be audited at work. And we were to set an EEG cap on your scalp and measure electrical activity uh, projected from deep in your brain to the surface of your scalp 24-7 for a few mm. days. And we were to put you in an MRI scanner and collect some structural scans and some functional scans. We get some really interesting data from your brain. Mm. But would that tell us what it is like for you to revise for your next set of exams or to be audited at work right and of course it wouldn't be able to tell us that kind of information we need to ask you we need to ask what it is like to cope with um expectations and mm. stress and workload yeah. and all of those things that your brain activity is not going to tell us and so we don't really have to dig very far into life real life to see that there's something very different uh between the notion of brain and the notion of mind. Philosophers refer to the term qualia, uh, that life is full of these qualitative experiences that we have, mm. and mm. these are impossible to describe physically. If I were right. to ask you to describe to me the smell of coffee in physical terms, 
what might you say? You might offer me the chemical structure of caffeine, but that doesn't get me any closer to the smell of coffee. Yeah. Or you might um, describe the physical processes as you drink the coffee and digest it, but that doesn't get me any closer to the smell of coffee. Um, if you want to understand the smell of coffee, you need to smell it. And no physical description gets you any closer to that. And that's really what we're getting at in, in this whole conversation, mm -hmm. that brain processes alone are not enough to account for human experience, human consciousness. Um, and, um, yeah, and so there are all kinds of other things I could say. Um, uh, well, philosophers such as David Chalmers have distinguished between the hard and easy problems of consciousness, where they distinguish, um, they talk about easy problems, which mm. are not easy by any stretch, um, but compared to the hard problem, they're trivial. He describes easy problems as those like looking at structures and functions that are turned on and off when you move from one state of consciousness to another, such as hmm. wakefulness to sleep or right. wakefulness to being under anesthetic. But that's a very different kind of question compared to the hard question, which is trying to account for what something is like. Why hmm. do we have this inner reality? Yeah. Um, and... Um, and so even neuroscientists that have no belief in God or a very different kind of belief in God would argue that mind and brain are two very different things. And that starting just with the physical building blocks and trying to build a case for mind and consciousness from there is not going to get you there because mm. you keep running up against this hard problem of consciousness. How do physical systems get you to experience well? There is no clear-cut answer to that. Despite throwing the best and brightest minds at it for many centuries, there is no consensus on how um, what the relationship is between mind and brain. Yeah, and uh, so we realize that there is this hard problem to ask about the experience. And obviously in the scientific arena, just because something is hard or complex doesn't discourage someone from pursuing or looking and trying to explore it. But... To a neuroscientist, is the concept of a mind too abstract to engage with? Or uh, do, as a neuroscientist, do they say, well, we're just going to focus more on the brain and not worry about the experiences or uh, the immaterialness of a mind that many people posit? Is that something that you as a neuroscientist have encountered? Or do you see neuroscientists posting that sort of a stance? Well, I think that um, in order to... I think it, 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 there is so many different things we could say to that. I mean, hmm. I suppose that neuroscience has many different facets. Um, it's, its primary aim is to study the function of the brain, the processes in, in the brain. Um, and they do do that very well. Um, and we have all kinds of studies of what the sort of neural correlates of various different mental states or behavioral patterns or drug effects might be on the human brain. And this was my bread and butter for hmm. um, over a decade. Um, but of course, in order to kind of piece that into a holistic understanding of human beings, we need to uh, not just be looking at human beings through one lens. And that's the problem with this reductive physicalist approach to human mm -hmm. beings to say that 
that um, those kind of explanations on their own can explain the mind um, is not enough. And, and that's yeah. why and we saw a neglect of the psychological sciences for, for many centuries, um, precisely on, 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 well, partly on this basis or partly from seeing, um, uh, seeing it as being something that is untouchable or un unknowable. And it's only been since we have really recognized that the mind is its own thing that we've yeah. really begun to make progress in things like how to treat mental health, hmm. which is reaching an all-time kind of crisis point, people's mental health. And, and so I think if we begin to look outwards to the real world, we see that that the mind is, is altogether real and incredibly powerful in its effects on the brain and the body. Um, and in fact, again, we could go to clinical neuroscience to see this. And scientists talk about this concept known as downward causation where mental processes have a powerful effect downwards onto the physical structures of the brain so um, one example is a landmark brain imaging study by Eleanor Maguire uh, of London taxi drivers uh, I believe it was in 2006 or might have been earlier and um London taxi drivers have to memorize the layout of London, something called the knowledge. And for that, they use their working memory. And the physical structures in, involved in working memory in the brain, one of them is the hippocampus. And so they measured the, the size of the hippocampus as these taxi drivers went through the process of memorizing the layout of London. And they compared them with London bus drivers who didn't need to memorize hmm. the layout of London at all. And they saw that in the taxi drivers, the hippocampus grew significantly as they used their working memory. Hmm. Um, and uh, um, they didn't, the same thing didn't happen in the bus drivers. And what this shows us is that mental processes, these higher cognitive processes, are having a physical effect on the brain. Um, and that's a process known as downward causation. Another example would be the placebo effect, which is a well-known clinical phenomenon. If you're given a blank drug that you believe will help, it will have some therapeutic benefit yeah. on your physical body. Um, this is another example to say that the mind, your mental processes, mental states are powerful in their effects downwards back onto the body and brain. And that's another reason to argue that mind and brain are two very distinct things that need to be treated as such. And our job is to figure out, is not to collapse them, but to figure out how they relate hmm. to one another. So then is... So the, the whole point of how the mind interacts with the brain and how mind interacts with the nervous um, interactions of our body, uh, us feeling pain, and that's, that causing us not just a physical reaction of in the form of inflammation, but also us impacting our mood and our, our condition at that point. So that just, it's, it's a very complex field for someone like me uh, to ask the question of how exactly does something immaterial like a mind interact with the brain. So that leads us to the question, is the mind seated in the brain and what goes on? What do we know so far about the interaction between the mind and the brain? Yes, well, um, one of the points that I make in my book is that it really depends who you ask. Um, 
again, your very question presumes physicalism. And we, we're just seeing this all the time. There's, there's a presumption that it must all be residing in the brain. And, mm. and, and what we need to be really clear on is what the science tells us and what it doesn't tell us. Mm. Um, what the science clearly tells us is that mind and brain are causally connected. Right. If you put someone in an MRI scanner and give them a working memory task to do, you see um, networks to do with working memory light up. Clearly, mental states and physical states uh, and brain states are connected. Mind and brain are causally connected. They are correlated. Hmm. That is clear. But very often that is used as a springboard to then say, well, they must be synonymous. They must be the same thing. Hmm. And essentially the view um, that you are your brain is saying that the mind is the brain, that, that the chemical reaction is the mental state. Right. And my, my aim in the book I wrote, Am I Just My Brain, is to say, look, that doesn't explain human beings in all of their fullness. It offers you yeah. a, diminish, a diminished view of humanity. Yeah. It also raises some very serious questions for the implications for free will, for mm. what would ultimately be possible with AI, for ethics and how we view human beings. Um, do, we own, do we give priority to those with a fully functional, healthy brain, if that is the be all and end all? Mm. Um, I guess uh, the, these sort of reductive physicalist approaches are trying to explain human beings just through one lens to say mm. that, um, you know, purely physical descriptions can can uh, explain everything that mental, uh, and they're essentially saying that um, the mind is the brain, that mental right. states are uh, brain states, mental processes are brain processes. But my aim in, in the book that I wrote, which is called Am I Just My Brain, is to say that that doesn't offer you the best way of looking at human beings. That doesn't make best sense of how we seem to live um, what clinical neuroscience is showing us. And there are other ways of viewing the relationship mm. between the mind and brain that make better sense of both of those things. One of those views is that the mind emerges from the brain. And this is looking at um, uh, the ideas that come from emergentist uh, thinking and also non-reductive physicalist approaches, mm. which say that when a number of component parts come together, um, something uh, new comes into being um, that is um, greater than the sum of those original building blocks yeah. um, and that cannot be reduced back to mm. those, although it is dependent on them um, mm. because it is an emergent property of the, a physical system. Um, and uh, that's a little bit like, you know, a film is made up of a number of component parts, a director, actors, a script, a soundtrack, and so on. Um, but the experience of the film is something that is greater than the sum of its kind of component parts. Um, so that's a little, trying to sort of capture a little bit of, of that view that I dig into that the mind emerges from the brain. Another possibility is that the mind is beyond the brain. Mm. And that's really getting at the substance dualist view, which says yeah. that there's a, a physical brain and a non-physical mind. These two things are distinct, but they do interact very closely. Um, 
And of course, that view would say that, that your mind is not seated in your brain. Mm. Uh, it, and in fact, it can't be located. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, and so that that's a very broad... Right. Uh, there's also the panpsychist view, which is an attempt to really say that any attempt to start with physical building blocks is redundant mm -hmm. and uh, really you need to begin with consciousness and build a bridge back to brain <laughs> and physical systems from there and Chalmers and Thomas Nagel and others have, have um, are uh, beginning to voice the panpsychist view um, so that I guess that is saying right. kind of mind is everything. Everything possesses uh, elements of consciousness that increase in complexity mm. uh, as as the systems increase. Um, so that's another view that is out there. So it's it's only one or two views that would say that mind is located mm. in or near the brain. The science shows us that they're correlated, but. To, to draw conclusions about the nature of the interaction is stepping beyond the realm of science and into mm -hmm. philosophy. And we need to recognize when we make that transition. That's a really important thing for this conversation. Yeah. And so when I was thinking about what, what has been the normal response from some, someone like a proper neuroscientist and not a philosopher looking into the question, what has been the response from a neuroscientist to the question of the interaction between the mind and brain and whether there is a distinction between the mind and brain. I stumble across this uh, passage from uh, Wilder Penfield from his book, The Mystery of the Mind. And I'm not going to get into the, the entire quote due to limitation of time, but he he, show, he, he mentions in pages um, 76 and 80 about this experiment that he did with the patient where he would apply an electrode, an electrode to the motor cortex of one hemisphere and that would make this conscious patient to move his hand. And then he would make the patient make noise uh, through the same process to vocalize him. And he notes that in, the, in both those instances, the patient says that I didn't do that, you did. And then he goes into the extent where he enables the patient uh, to recall a stream of memories from, from, from the past. And he records that the patient still would say that the surgeon was responsible for the phenomenon, even though he was recognizing the details of his own past experience. And then uh, the great builder Penfield comes to conclude in page 80, he says that, for my own part, after years of striving to explain the mind on the basis of brain action alone, I have come to the conclusion that it is simpler and far easier and logical if one adopts the hypothesis that our being does consist of two fundamental elements. And it was very fascinating to see for him to look at it and ask and say the same thing that you said about how reducing it to just the brain leaves us out, uh, leaves so many gaps in the theory that we are positing and you just mentioned one example of you know, asking the question about what does coffee taste like? The distinction between us experiencing uh, heat in our tongue, but also the, the, the sense of taste, which we can't experience and you know, waking up, memorizing the brain activity or mental states and all of that. And here is a neuroscientist looking at the same experimentation and saying, uh, you know, I look at it and the best explanation so far, and sort of in a, in a philosophical sense, diving into between the philosophy, he says the best explanation so far is to say, the mind and brain are distinct and we are, our being consists of two fundamental elements. Now, I'm an, and I'm asking to the neuroscientists in you, uh, as a neuroscientist, what would be an, maybe a quick uh, experimentation or maybe a quick data from your mind that you would pull up to show to a person that neuroscience science does show that we have good reasons to think that we have a mind, 
is there anything that quickly comes to your mind that would appeal to a neuroscientist who might be listening to this uh, to this podcast um i mean there are all kinds of books out there on this topic um you don't have to um uh dig too far but i mean there are some very interesting um i mean i i do unpack some of them in in am i just my brain that would mm. be a great starting right. point to kind of for a sort of an introduction to the topic and there are a number of references from there but there are some very interesting data sets out there in clinical neuroscience that highlight precisely what Wilder Penfield was seeing which is that um human beings are highly complex mm. and uh there are there is always data that is so surprising and that actually gives us pause for thought and cause to kind of question and just really think about um things now um one one example would be um a study that was um conducted by um professor adrian owen and published in the prestigious journal um neuroscience in 2006 where they studied patients in a persistent vegetative state and hmm. were um able to make contact with a very small number of these patients that were showing no outward signs of consciousness hmm. and were able to um train them to answer a series of biographical questions using their mind they were able to say look if uh, imagine you're playing tennis right. and if they were to if you imagine you're playing tennis um, a network of areas to do with motor movement to control light up in your brain hmm. and then they said imagine you're moving around your house at home and if they do that a number of areas to do with spatial navigation light up hmm. and then they would ask them a series of questions and say um if you want to answer yes to this question imagine you're playing tennis hmm. and if you want to answer no to this question imagine you're moving around your house at home and they asked them biographical questions that could be verified by family members and a right. very small number of these patients answered every single question correctly um showing that despite significant um damage to their brain they were showing um levels of consciousness hmm. um obviously not the same levels um compared with a healthy human hmm. being but way more than we um even just a few decades ago thought was happening in a person of that uh in that condition and so this gives us pause for thought um it reminds us human beings are highly complex another dataset is of near death experiences which is very vast right. and there's one particular yeah. account called um proof of heaven by um Eben Alexander who was originally a physicalist um and a Harvard neuroscientist and really um dismissive of his own patients um hmm. he was a neurosurgeon and his patients had come to him after surgery and recounted experiences of consciousness in their hmm. surgery despite being in a state of clinical death and he was very dismissive until he had a bacterial meningitis that almost ended his life um in i think well about 10 years ago and um he went into a very very deep coma his family were told to put their affairs in order he was he didn't wasn't expected to survive and miraculously pulled through and described this very very vivid hmm. experience despite the fact that the vast majority of the brain the parts of the brain known to be associated with consciousness had shut down entirely hmm. um 
and he drew drew some very powerful conclusions that that consciousness continues beyond the grave and that um and went on to you know very dramatically change his view from strict physicalist to really there's more going on here um and this is really what we see when we start to look at people take it out of the realm of pure philosophy and pure mm. neuroscience into the clinic and into human beings we see right. that there's so much more going on um, and this is another thing that I try to draw out in my book that any persuasive account of the relationship between mind and brain has to take account of the complexity mm. that we see in the clinic yeah and for those listening if you would like to see an exciting talk on from Gary Habermas on how Indies prove against naturalism check out our friends at the carpenter's desk they've got an exciting talk on this and the the reason i asked about uh, what evidence would you give a, a, a neuroscientist for the existence of a mind was i came across uh, one post by a cosmologist from india and he was citing sir roger penrose contribution towards quantum consciousness and that he was trying to show that you know the mind therefore is material and now is solely the field of inquiry of physics and philosophy cannot do anything there and so he was trying to not only make his case that the mind is material but rather he wanted to shift it completely from any sort of philosophical engagement and purely into a physical talk uh, what what's happening with sir roger penrose position on quantum consciousness if maybe it's too deep for us to dive in we don't have much time so but what's happening behind the scene what was what is he doing in a topic of consciousness yeah well i mean um Roger Penrose's um work is uh very very interesting um and I know that he he and um others have you know placed an emphasis on um microtubules and and their kind of role in possibly contributing towards some sort of um hmm. quantum coherence that would be necessary for consciousness and hmm. but again I think I, I I don't want to be misunderstood here I think a neuroscience of consciousness and physical systems is vital right um and biophysics um such as the kind that penrose is is um, referring to is vital in this conversation but we have seen over the last decades and centuries that physical explanations alone are not enough hmm. to explain human consciousness um the material cannot get you to experience um and and we need to recognize what science can and cannot tell us science can talk about that the the different areas that are contributing to mental states but we will never be asked i mean it would be i think it would be um unwise to want to Uh, at some point collapse that mental state purely into a physical system i think we're seeing that the importance of the, um mental states uh is really vital in in how we understand human beings and for that we need to reach out to other areas as mm. well and so mm. people like i think you know views like panpsychism are helpful in the sense that they at least put consciousness as primary and say look um we need to start here and start with experience yeah start with human encounter and try and build a bridge back to physics and chemistry but just mm-hmm. starting with physics and chemistry is not going to get you there you keep running up against the the wall of the hard problem mm. of consciousness um 
And But uh, having said all of that, even if we achieve a thorough neuroscience of consciousness, which I hope we do, that will always still, still leave some questions unanswered. And it was Chalmers himself that said finding a correlate is not the same as an explanation. Hmm. Why right. does consciousness exist in the first place? Hmm. Um, and for that kind of question, um, the science is what will never be able to answer that. And we're never yeah. intended to answer questions of purpose um, and those kind of bigger kinds of explanations. And that's where my you know, Christian faith and um, theistic position is so hmm. helpful, because then we can say, well, look, yeah. Um, uh, if we entertain the possibility that God exists, does that help us in answering that kind of why question, that bigger question of why does this even exist in the first place? Mm. And, mm. you know, I have um, a very vivid memory as a child of being sat by a window looking out at the rain and suddenly the question coming into my head, why do I exist? Why do I think? Um why am I a, a thinking being that experiences life? And I wasn't religious. I wasn't raised in a religious family. That question appeared seemingly from nowhere. And I don't think I'm alone in having those kind of questions. Mm. But the sciences alone and physical systems alone are not enough to answer them. Right. Um, and, and yet, if God exists, we have a basis that undergirds our understanding of why consciousness exists, because if God exists, then then physical systems were not what we began with. We began with God, and God is a conscious being. Hmm. The very first sentence of the Bible says, in the beginning, God. Um, and physical systems um, are a product of the work and creative work of this God. And therefore, consciousness precedes everything physical. Right. Um, and and therefore we can say well it exists because god exists and we are kind of made in his image with his fingerprint with his imprint and so we are conscious because god is conscious and has made human beings to be a little bit like him and so i feel like there's a lot of um, explanatory power in the Christian theism and, and how we think about consciousness, that just chalking it down to physics and chemistry, however complex and however kind of impressively sounding it, it is, is not going to answer that question uh, to its fullness. Right. And we're just going to wrap up within the next couple of minutes, maybe three to four minutes. This is one question that I wanted to ask you before we wrap up. Um, what 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 is happening in the in the existence of an animal do animals like chimpanzees and and creatures do they have a form of mind and this question became fascinating to me because i saw this interaction between deepak chopra and michael Shermer. and deepak chopra of course holds to this pantheistic sort of extreme in view and he was talking about how cells have consciousness now, obviously i'm not asking about the consciousness of cells but we see animals behaving responding and we see cells uh, finding out about antibodies entering uh, about germs entering the body and antibodies reacting and all of that uh, what is happening there? Do these creatures and cells have minds or how do we explain their behavior? Mm. Yes, I think that's a great question. Um, uh, I think if I just begin with your question about animal consciousness and then move on to the panpsychist side, side of it, because um, there are different ways of viewing that. Um, I think that it is it is clear anyone that has a domestic 
pet of you know dog cat yeah. uh, variety and and some others would would be convinced that they do have some degree of emotional life that hmm. they are can be become excited and pleased to see you they become scared um and um and so they do seem to have some level of um awareness um but i think um a number of sort of uh behavioral scientists in the animal fields would 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 make the point that um they seem to have an awareness of their external environment and they are responsive to their external environment. But we do not know and we can't verify whether they have um, that kind of internal self-awareness. Mm. Mm. Um, do they fall into bed at the end of the day and say, oh, I had a really hard day today? Or are they actually more just driven by where their next meal is coming from, what their right. owner is doing? And many would say that they only begin to exhibit human-like qualities if it's a, um, through human interaction mm. and training that comes from a human being. And, you know, some um, scientists say that, that the most, yeah, uh, um, the most highly trained chimpanzee will never exceed the ability of a four-year-old child. And they will only mm. reach that if a human being made in the image of God actually initiates right. the training. They wouldn't seek it out for themselves. And so mm -hmm. there is still something distinctly different between even the most advanced primate mm. and the most primitive um, human in our kind of ancestry. And so how do we account for that distinction? Um, and then if we go to the, the rest of the, the animal kingdom, um, uh, and and then down into the kind of atomic scale and all kinds of levels. I mean, so the panpsychist view would say that there are elements of consciousness in every living thing, including right. electrons. And, um, and this is a really interesting view. And I think it's helpful to have it alongside a theistic view, hmm. um, because that at least... Um, enables the conversation to move away from just physical hmm. starting points um, but it does have some limitations in the sense that it's impossible to verify whether right. an electron is conscious and in any case what what does that mean hmm. um, another uh, limitation is how do you account for the unity of consciousness if we are made up of billions of conscious elements hmm. You know, right. if it's true that um, every particle in us has some degree of consciousness, why don't we have three trillion distinct conscious experiences? Mm -hmm. Why do we have just one? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really account for the unity of consciousness um, that we experience. Um, and it also doesn't account for this, this sort of step shift difference between primates and humans. In, in the language that we have, and then this reflexive self-awareness that, that humans uniquely seem to have that animals don't. Um, um, and so there are some very helpful aspects of this view, but there are also some, some big questions right. that it leaves unanswered. That I, I arguably Christian theism would, you know, argue that we're right to say consciousness undergirds hmm. the cosmos. Hmm but it's personal and it's particular to human beings, right. although there are elements of it in, in animals as well. Well, excellent. Uh, thank you so much, Sharon, Doc, Sharon Dix, for being on the podcast and engaging with these. Uh, this is such a huge topic to go in with. And your audience, uh, I think this talk itself will get you pumped up to get hold of Dr. Sharon's book, Am I Just 
my brain and i'll be dropping it in the links and you can definitely go and get hold of it uh, so that will be sort of like an entry level book for a lay person to engage with this topic am i right and absolutely uh, yes. is is after they get through that book for a lay person not for someone who deals with neuroscience but for a lay person after they get through that book is there a sort of an in- intermediate book that comes to your mind that you would uh, quickly suggest well uh, there are a number of uh, recommendations in the in the back um i well um there's god and the brain by hmm. um brad um bradley sickler that would be another great great next one god and the brain yeah and for those yeah. who are very nerdy and geeky you can take a look at the blackwell companion to substance dualism which goes into huge depths on the topic but that would be like an expert level book so i'll be dropping the links to all of these books and especially to do to dr sharan's book and once again dr sharan thank you for being here with us and we hope you had a great experience with us oh, it was a pleasure to join you thanks for having me and thank you guys for joining in and we will see you in the next one take care and god bless to know more about our ministry visit our website at www.saftapologetics.com you can also find saft apologetics on facebook instagram youtube and patreon